night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. We're kicking off another week here. The weeks fly by. The situation doesn't change much, much, at least for us in upstate New York. Snow and lockdowns. That's the rule of the day. To an extreme. To a troubling extreme, actually. But either way, we're happy to be able to be here with you all tonight. And this is what we enjoy to do the most. Enjoy to do. Enjoy doing the most. Is uh, having these little nightly uh, get-togethers, if you will. Welcome to everybody in chat. Uh, We have another UFO program for you tonight. Last week, we ended the live programs with a discussion about UFOs. And we're picking that up. Again tonight, we've got returning guest Preston Dennett joining us to talk about his research and his books. Now, Preston's list of books is very, very impressive. In fact, given this list, I'm not sure how he has time to do anything but write books. He's written books such as Aliens and UFOs, the Coronado Island UFO Incident, Extraterrestrial Visitations, the healing power of UFOs, inside UFOs. We're going to be talking specifically about a couple uh, that he's written more recently. In fact, one of them, I I find all of these to be fascinating, but one of them is called UFOs at the Drive-In, 100 True Cases. And last time he was on, we talked about another book uh, of a similar topic. It was Schoolyard UFO Encounters. That was the one, I think that was the newest book when we had him on the program Last time he was here. We'll also be talking about undersea UFO bases. That's another one of his books. And onboard UFO encounters. So a lot of stuff to go over tonight with Preston, and we're excited to have him on. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and also on the Twitch channel. Both of those channels can be found by searching for JV Johnson. I I should just mention that the YouTube channel is the place where we archive the uh, programs other than the podcast versions, obviously, but the YouTube channel has many hundreds of back episodes of the show, all sorts of great interviews there. If you're looking for something to fill an afternoon or many afternoons for that matter, you can go to the YouTube channel. It's all there for free. There's no charge for any of that. You just go and, and uh, look through the, the interviews and you know the playlists, whatever makes it easier for you and find the ones you want to listen to and, and enjoy. And if you do that and you haven't subscribed yet, I do ask that you at least subscribe. There's no fee for subscribing on YouTube. It's free, of course. And then uh, Twitch is uh, kind of the same thing, although there's no archive of programs there, but we do broadcast live on Twitch. And the neat thing about the Twitch channel is that we have a weekend program, which was a little less serious than this weekday program. And we stream it live on the Twitch channel, not on the YouTube YouTube channel. Just in case you were looking for us Friday night, that's where we were, over on uh, Twitch. Uh, broadcasting the show there. So let me think. Any anything? I don't think there's anything else we need to discuss before we get into this uh, chat with Preston Dennett. But we'll do that. We'll go to break and we'll bring him in and we will start talking about UFOs tonight. It's beyond reality. Looking forward to this conversation. Please support the program. Go to Patreon.com/slash Johaw. That's J O H A W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
It's Beyond Reality. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Appreciate you being here. If you're a podcast listener, also thank you for listening to the podcast version of the program. Please share that with your friends. The podcast is being downloaded something in the neighborhood of 10,000 times a day. Thank you so much for making us one of the most successful podcasts on the podcast market. And that really is uh, what the show has become, and we appreciate you doing that for us. Um, If you do listen as a podcast and you're interested in the live version of the show, you can catch it on YouTube or Twitch. And, uh, of course, anywhere that you listen to Good Talk Radio. So um, we always invite you to do that as well. Whatever works best for you. Tonight we're going to have another fantastic discussion. Looking forward to this one. We've got returning guest Preston Dennett joining us. Preston is a UFO researcher. He has written many, many books on the topic. In fact, uh, Preston, I'm looking at this list of of uh, titles that you've authored. I don't think you have time to sleep, maybe eat, or do anything but write books. There's quite a list here. I'm having fun, that's for sure. I do have to ask you, though, I mean, looking through this list here, you know, there's, I would, I don't know, I don't know how many are total here, but most of them are, are UFO-related. Then there's there's one uh, called Bigfoot, Yeti, and Other Eight Men, and then there's another one, California Ghosts, and then there's one, Human Levitation. So there's some variations from the UFO uh, topic. However, I'm, my question to you about that is, do you see a connection between the UFO phenomena and some of these other paranormal phenomena? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's why I started researching ghosts first, because uh, many people were having UFO encounters. We're also seeing ghosts. or having near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences. Uh, yeah, Bigfoot reared its ugly head at one point. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. You know, let's look into Bigfoot. Uh, so, yeah, there's definitely a connection. It's pretty hard to figure out. I'm not quite sure what's going on here, but... Uh, there is a connection for well, sure. And I, and I hear that from more and more people who are researching these topics. You know, I'll hear from a Bigfoot-focused researcher that, that he or she has had to start looking at UFO activity because there seems to be some type of connection uh, between the two. When, you know, when there's UFO sighting or when there's a Bigfoot sighting, they'll say, you know, in the same area on the same night, there's also a UFO sighting. Or we'll have someone who investigates ghosts talk about that connection as well. Um, this conversation where people are making these connections between paranormal phenomena is becoming more and more common. When did you first don't notice that pattern? Well, when it came to Bigfoot, I remember the day exactly. I had just been contacted by this guy named Robert. He was a radiologist from Canyon Country. Uh, that's here in Southern California, not far from L.A., but turns out it's next to the Los Angeles National Forest. Okay. Uh, I didn't know it, but it uh, turns out there is a history of Bigfoot encounters in this area. Uh, so it's a, you know, a pretty rural area. At any rate, he had a UFO land in his backyard. Uh, blue and white lights. It was totally silent. Uh, he watched it and uh, was not able to identify it, and this thing just took off. And the next night, he had a Bigfoot encounter. He says the Bigfoot was in the exact same place. Wow. Uh, he had a telepathic connection with it. It was very angry at his dogs, and uh, he felt like there was probably some connection. I'm like, wow, this is you know, pretty interesting. Uh, and he said, well, you know, that's not all. Following this, we had a poltergeist outbreak in our home. Uh, wow. Yeah. So this was a sort of a perfect conjunction of all three different types of paranormal phenomena. Yeah, kind, of the, was, kind of the trifecta there. <laughs> yeah. 
So that really got me scratching my head. That's what got me into investigating Bigfoot and looking into where there's a perfect conjunction of Bigfoot and UFO encounters. And it does happen. In about, I'm not even going to say 1% of the cases, it's not common. We have probably a good, you know, 50, 100 cases documented. But when you compare it to the huge number of Bigfoot cases or UFO cases, most of them do not involve one or the other. Just this very tiny percentage, they perfectly intersect. and It's very hard to make sense of. I have to ask you about the the story you just told us, though, that kind of got you started on this cross-phenomena uh, research. Uh, you said that the, the, the person who had that experience, when he had the Bigfoot experience, he had a telepathic connection to the creature. Now, I don't hear that very often. Is that a function of the person? In other words, did he have some type of psychic sensibilities that allowed him to make that connection, or do you think that's a function of the Bigfoot itself? Yeah, that was immediately my first question, actually, and I started looking into it, and it turns out telepathy and Bigfoot do go together, okay. something people fairly you know, consistently report. Uh, yeah, I didn't know it at the time, because I didn't know a lot about Bigfoot. I had sort of been skirting around the issue. I knew at some point, I was afraid, you know, that it might be real. Uh, it was a can of worms, and sure enough, it was. Uh, there was an enormous amount of evidence supporting Bigfoot. And it was, you know, I, I'm still having trouble making sense of what exactly the connection is. Because there's some cases where people have actually seen Bigfoot coming in or out of a craft. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's, I, that was not my only Bigfoot case. It wasn't long after that. I ran into another lady. She'd been having very extensive contact and called me up at one point. She says, I'm having a problem with Bigfoot. You know, I think I'm in telepathic contact with it. And so, yeah, I have to admit there is a weird connection there. Uh, and Bigfoot is real. The evidence is overwhelming. I'm not exactly sure what the connection is, but I think it has something to do with consciousness and telepathy and the fact that Bigfoot and E.T. can communicate with each other. So, but I've got to ask you, you've kind of, you know, danced around it a little bit, and I'm sure you don't have any definitive answers, so you kind of have to do that. But is it your opinion that Bigfoot is an alien creature, or is it your opinion that Bigfoot, as a terrestrial creature, just has some type of ability to communicate communicate and connect with the extraterrestrial visitors? Yeah, based on the evidence, you know, I've looked into it pretty deeply. I'm going to say the latter, that Bigfoot is... Uh, an earthling, so to speak. Yeah. We've been around here a very long time. We've got uh, recorded accounts stretching back uh, well over 100 years and you know, an oral tradition stretching back much longer, particularly with Native Americans. Uh, so, yeah, they've been around here for a very, very long time. And as near as I can tell, they're uh, intelligent, like us, perhaps more spiritually evolved, uh, and have remained hidden for very long time. Yeah, they're good at that. They're good at remaining mysterious, that's for sure. Yeah, but there are not ETs as we think of them. But then again, I mean, that's a tricky term. I mean, did we even evolve on Earth? Right. The fact is, there are a number of people who report seeing human-like ETs looking very much like us, or I mean, pretty much exactly. And that raises serious questions about who we are and, you know, what's our connection with these guys and 
did we actually evolve here on this planet? Yeah, a, a long-standing and actually getting more and more complex question for sure. I've got one more question for you regarding your books. Um, you know, other than actually talking about the content, uh, I noticed that uh, the covers of the books often feature an alien that looks like the traditional gray type alien. You know, with the big eyes and the you know the the oval head and what people would normally assume to be a gray, or maybe even uh, what they would conjure in their mind if you just said an alien to beginning to begin with. Uh, do you use that figure on your be- on your book covers because you believe that that's the type of alien that we're seeing most commonly, or is it just because that's what people identify with? What's the choice of that that uh, creature sig- signify in the books? Yeah, it's certainly the most common uh, report I get is some variation of grays. Uh, but it's not the only one, which is why I do have a cover with a praying mantis. That's another mm-hmm. uh, reported type, as well as human-looking. Uh, reptilian is another category, but I don't get a whole lot of those. I get more of what I would describe as strange humanoids, um, this sort of uncategorizable. Uh, they're unique. It's very hard to get two separate cases that you could match up and say, well, these people are seeing the same exact species. Uh, There's these slight variations, even between grays. But yeah, 70%, I'm going to estimate, is some variation of what we would call grays. When when we have those types of sightings, or when people report those kinds of sightings to you, why is it that they're not wearing some kind of spacesuit apparatus or or maybe they are is what we're seeing and describing is that their flesh and blood or is that some type of exoskeleton i believe it's my assessment let me put it that way is that they most of the cases where people say oh you know i couldn't tell if there was a suit or not if this gray was not wearing any clothes at all uh, i think there is a skin tight jumpsuit okay I really do mm-hmm. uh there are a number of cases where people describe your sort of tinfoil type or metallic suit yep. or blue jumpsuits, green. That's not uncommon, tan. But, yeah, this comes up where people say over and over again, you know, I don't know if there were clothes on these things at all. Uh, but we're not seeing what normal body features that we would see on other humanoids, uh, you know, able to determine you know, what sex they are, for instance. Yeah. Appears that they are wearing uniforms. They're just very skin tight. Let's talk a little bit about your genesis into this topic. When did you become interested in it? I know you had some friends and family, I believe, that had some experiences that kind of kicked it off for you. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty upset about it. <laughs> Scandalized, really. I mean, I felt I was upset. Let me put it that way. It's 1986, November 17th, actually, was the exact date. There was a report on the news about a sighting over Alaska. Uh, some pilot had seen a UFO, and it followed his jet. This was a commercial jet. It was a very well-verified sighting. And it kind of shook me up a little bit. And I started asking people with my family, my coworkers, my friends. And there was quite a few of them who had had pretty incredible encounters. Uh, I was you know, not happy about it. It was like being hit by a ton of bricks, really. Uh, I, I, mean, I just couldn't even wrap my head around the fact that Earth was being invaded by ETs and no one was really talking about it or taking it seriously on the mainstream. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I went from there. I joined MUFON. I became a field investigator. I started buying all the books. I went to all the conventions, started looking for these things myself. I needed to find out the truth. I just could not believe this was happening. Why do you think it struck you so heavily? I mean, everybody goes to the point where, you know, they hear their first UFO story or talk to somebody who had an encounter, or maybe they have one themselves. But it doesn't affect everybody the same way. Why do you think you took it so to the heart? Yeah, I thought, well, maybe have I had contact? I mean, that was something. Yeah. I, I did ask that question of myself. I'm like, well, you know, just leave this alone. I mean, it's not even happening to you. And I looked in my past, and I'm like, mm, no. Can't really point to anything, but, you know, I did know a good friend who had missing time. Someone within my family had had a face-to-face encounter with gray ETs. Another person at work had missing time. And, and it wasn't long, actually, before I did have a very close-up sighting. And it soon became, at, I mean, at some point, it became apparent that at some level, I am having contact and... Uh, I think it's really a result of my having really dug into this and doing research, honestly, but I don't know. It could, it could go farther back. So you're on the fence then as to whether or not you had uh, previous encounters. Do you think that's because uh, if you had those encounters, you were traumatized to the point where you intentionally don't remember them? Or do you think that there's some type of mind eraser thing going on here? I would lean towards the mind eraser. Uh, <laughs> theory. Mm-hmm. This is certainly, I mean, something I see very often with when people have encounters is memory problems. Yeah. I don't think it's you know, as a result of trauma and our own psychological minds are blocking this. Not that that doesn't happen, but what we see is the ET is directly telling people, you won't remember this. Uh, I mean, really doing a sort of post-hypnotic suggestion uh, number on a person and making sure that they don't remember it until it's time perhaps or never or whenever. Have you ever tried having any kind of regression therapy yourself to see if any of those memories can come back? If, if in fact they, they occurred? <laughs> well, you know, actually, yeah, I have considered it. I generally don't uh, recommend hypnosis to people unless they can point to a specific incident. Mm-hmm or having anxieties that are really disrupting their life. But, yeah, I had a weird thing happen, and it took me a while to come to grips with this, honestly. Often I'd just tell people this was a sighting. It was. I was driving down the street one evening. This was late July 1992. I had just left my brother, my sister-in-law, and I'm heading home to Canoga Park. And I'm heading around this tight corner, and I've very little side street, about three miles an hour, when this ball of light drops down out of the sky. My first thought was, oh, a bird is coming towards my car, but you know, this is late at night, and it's not a bird, it's a round ball of light. Mm-hmm. Well, could this be a firecracker? It was late July, and it was immediately apparent it wasn't a firecracker either, because this thing came you know, about 300 feet away, right up to the front of my windshield, moves back and forth two, maybe three times, stops a second, kind of like looks at me. You know, it's just a little ball of light the size of a, you know, a golf ball. And scoots forward and darts straight up and uh, in 
to, you know, the zenith there. Is this while you were in motion? No, I had stopped. Oh, you stopped. Yeah, when this thing came up, I stopped. And, uh, you know, should have turned around and told my brother, my sister-in-law, you know, I just saw a UFO. But I honestly don't remember what happened. I don't remember driving home. I don't remember. You know, in fact, I forgot about the whole darn thing for a couple of months there. And just one day, like, dawned on me, like, hey, this happened. I remember, I remember seeing this, and it was very interesting to me because I had interviewed so many people who described this sort of thing, and uh, never quite understood it until it happened to me. And I'm like, wow, all right, well, maybe I do have missing time. And uh, yeah, for years I just told people, oh, it was a sighting. You know, it was a very interesting little ball of light that came up to my car. But the last couple of years, you know, I started to really reflect on it. Like, I don't remember driving home. That's weird. Yeah, so as you look at this incident in retrospect, um, you know, obviously a little ball of light the size of a golf ball isn't going to house one of those grays that we're so familiar with that are on the covers of your books or that, you know, people report seeing. So what do you think that was like a remote device of some kind, some kind of a drone or probe? Uh, Yeah, I mean, looking back in hindsight, that's exactly what I think. Mm. At the time, I didn't even have the time for thought. I don't remember thinking anything. Right at the time, you wouldn't, sure. Uh, but, you know, having interviewed a lot of people, this is not uncommon. Many people describe this kind of thing, and it often precedes an abduction. So I'm like, okay. Uh, so, yeah, at this point I am wondering if maybe this hypnotic regression is something I should try. Uh, but, but you uh, haven't yet. You haven't done that yet. <laughs> I haven't, no. When you talk to people who have had experiences, that it, the, the, the memories of those experiences either come from some type of therapy session like that or just they get triggered out of nowhere, what do they say about how those memories come back to them? You know, if, if you go through a, a, an extended period of time where you don't remember an incident, how does it start to come back? Is there any commonality how, to how that works? Um, yeah. There, there is. So often it'll just come back in the days and weeks following, sort of pretty much immediately. Uh, other times it can take a couple of years and it's triggered by a cue. Like one guy I interviewed, uh, he had no idea he had had a UFO experience until he walked into a bookstore, picked up a, you know, happened to see a book with the word UFO on it. And suddenly he remembered it was enough to sort of trigger him. Another guy I talked to broke his wisdom tooth, and the pain shooting through his jaw reminded him of a similar incident. He had been on board a UFO as a kid. So there's these little triggers or cues that do sometimes cause people to remember. Uh, But Many people, I'm going to say most people who have ever gone under hypnosis or hypnotic regression do have conscious memories of this stuff and it's these little snippets that lead him to go seek further and uh, dig out the lost time. You know, it's one thing to have somebody suspect that they've had something happen to them related to alien uh, contact or UFO contact. And they go to seek the the therapist or the, and, and get the regression therapy and and have these memories come back. Have, has there ever been any research done where people who don't necessarily have these 
suspicions have gone to see what kind of percentage of them actually end up finding out that indeed, yeah, you know what, under that uh, regression therapy, I recalled this particular alien contact. I'm curious as to whether people who don't suspect it have the same type of of results. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't think there's been a whole lot of research into that. I know Bud Hopkins, a very famous researcher, talked about one case where uh, the only real clue was a gentleman had a real fear of a certain stretch of road and put him under hypnosis, and yeah, a uh, deduction uh, scenario was recalled. But as far as just putting someone randomly under hypnosis and seeing if they've been taken, no, I don't know. I don't know that anyone's really done that. It'd be interesting to take 100 people who suspect they've had a con- had some kind of contact and see how many of them can actually remember them under this therapy and 100 people who don't even never even thought about it, you know, and see if they have a similar percentage of experiences. I'm just curious as to how much this actually permeates the, the general population. Well, I read a quote. This was very early on in my research from J. Allen Hynek that one in 40 people have had an onboard experience. Onboard experience? Had been taken on board. Wow. I thought, well, no, you know, no way. That's way too much. I know fifty, you know, forty people, and that's what actually got me to start asking everyone I knew. Have you seen a UFO? Have you had any unusual experience? And I didn't need to ask forty people. I found about five people who qualified for you know, having face-to-face contact or an onboard experience. And uh, actually, ended up surveying the literature. I wrote an article for the MUFON Journal, calling it "One in Forty and there's a UFO epidemic, because uh, Bud Hopkins was saying things like this, Jacques Vallée and many other major researchers. And it was about a year later, the Roper poll came out. The Roper organization, of course, does these polls on various subjects, and they finally decided to tackle the UFO subject. And they found one in 50 people show the markers of a UFO abduction. So it was very close. And yeah, I think this is much more common than people realize. Well. Wow. What are the markers? What what are those markers? A close-up UFO sighting, missing time, uh, orbs of light in your home, uh, dreams about ETs, uh, unusual or unexplained marks on your body, or uh, medical effects, uh, these sort of things. There's a number of them. Um, speaking of uh, um, markers... Uh, for your own personal experience, have you ever suspected any implants or anything like that, uh, anything done to your body in those previous unrecalled encounters that you suspect you may have had? Uh, well, I've thought about it, because I have to tell you, that is very consistently reported. Yeah. Uh, uh, in my latest book, I've onboard UFO encounters. I've got 15 cases, and I'm going to say, gosh, at least seven of them have gone to the doctor at some point, and the doctor's like, you know, what's this? What's this in your jaw? You know, what's this in your right. ankle here? And what's this in your sinus? It's, a, and it's diagnosed as a foreign body. So I'm not going to discount it. It's, I think, probably something that usually does happen with people who are taken on board or do have missing time. Uh, so, but I haven't myself personally you know, sought out to see if I have anything unusual in my own body where do you get most of your uh, 
I don't know what would you call them, clients or referrals, the people that you interviewed and and who who claim to have had these experiences that you end up including in the books or at least researching their stories, where do they come from primarily? Do they reach out to you or do you seek them out? Both. I mean, there's there's all kinds of different ways that I, I meet these people. I mean, for instance, one lady I wrote about, she was someone I had worked with for years and the subject of UFOs just never came up until she walked into my office one day. I worked as a bookkeeper, and uh, she she screamed and pointed at this little statuette that someone else had given me. It was a little gray alien. And I had just put it up there. She's like, "What's that?" I'm like, "Well, Connie, you know, what do you think it is?" She's like, "Well, I don't know, but I saw one of those, you know, when I had just had my baby." I'm like, "You're kidding." So, yeah, I've gotten a lot of people at my office. Uh, of course, I've got a network of family, friends, and coworkers who are re- referring me people. I have a website now. I'm uh, doing radio shows like this. People will call me up. People contact me from my books. I go to conventions, and people will come up to me after I speak. Uh, but sometimes it's just in the line at the post office or, I mean, you know what I mean, at the bank or something. Right. Yeah. You um, ever have an opportunity to talk to someone whose story, and I'm sure many of them are frightening. I don't know. Maybe you can give us an idea of how many, what kind of percentage of people actually have, you know, fear of the experience they have. But in addition to that, anybody have any physical harm, bodily harm that they can identify? Oh, yeah, absolutely. People do uh, have a wide variety of physical symptoms as a result of their UFO encounters. Uh, one guy I talked to, he was actually worked for special forces in the army. Uh, he woke up one evening and there were three graves around his bed. <laughs> he has no history of, of encounters, though his brother did have a, an abduction. And, uh, it was, you know, this was 1994. He knew what gray ETs looked like from TV. And he's like, wow, you know, he recognized him. And, uh, they said, get up, come with us. And he obediently obeyed. Uh, walked out into his living room, saw that the wall had been turned transparent or invisible, and they pulled him out into his backyard. Uh, he was struck by a beam of light and pulled up into this craft, and uh, he was laid out on a table, and they started to examine him, and he saw this instrument coming down for his eye, and that freaked him out, and that's all he really remembers except waking up the next day, and there was this triangular-shaped uh, mark on his arm. This is something that's not super common, but it does happen. Uh, he ended up actually going to the veterans hospital, and the doctor looked at it and was like, "Well, you know what? No, this doesn't look psychosomatic, I guess." And uh, told him basically that he could either accept experience or not, uh, but it's probably best to just move on. So yeah, I mean, I have had people report healings as well. Yeah, well, you wrote a book about that, didn't you? Yes, I did. And uh, that also, I'm wondering how common it is. It's a fairly consistently reported feature. Maybe 10%, 25% of the cases. Some researchers think maybe up to 50. But no, I don't think it's quite that high. Uh, but I remember the first case I got, a lady I was uh, had interviewing described how she had been diagnosed with a cyst in her fallopian tubes. It appeared on MRI, was causing her all kinds of problems. 
She was set to have it removed, and the day before surgery, she had an encounter. Something came into her bedroom that night. She doesn't remember a whole lot, but she's pretty sure what, you know, what was going on or who it was, ETs, because she has a long history of encounters. And went to the hospital the next day, and they're like, well, you know, they did the pre-surgery uh, imaging. They're like, well, we can't find your cyst. Wow. <laughs> this is very strange. And uh, did you have surgery? She denied it. I said, well, you know, not only can't we find your cyst, but there's fluid here in your fallopian tube, which is only present after a person has had surgery, so we kind of know you had surgery. And she's like, no, no, I didn't. She didn't want to tell them. And they, they examined her. They found what looked like laser scars on her abdomen. And uh, that's where it was pretty much left. Wow. I mean, that can't be very common, is it? I mean, you wrote a book about it, so it must be common enough to have a few of these encounters. I got another case just like it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, many cases actually involving tumors removed, a wide variety of healings, actually. Uh, I, you know, I found 300 cases in the literature and traced many of them myself. And most people don't report these cases, so you could easily times it by 10 or 100. So I'm sure it's more common than most people think, but how common? It's very hard to say. It's fascinating stuff. Um, I mean, we've all heard stories of of somebody who you know, was diagnosed with, let's let's say cancer, what a terrible disease it is, uh, but diagnosed with something like that, and then they are, and the words are often used to describe it as miraculously cured. Uh, could it be that this is actually happening more often than we, we know of? Yeah, yeah, spontaneous remission, miraculous cures. Uh, this is a, a well-known medical phenomena. I talked to one guy, Jim Schaefer. Uh, he was diagnosed with cancer, had a tumor on his neck that was uh, extruding and you know, bone hard and growing larger quickly and was due to have it removed. He had an encounter, uh, woke up the next morning and looked in the mirror, could couldn't believe his eyes. The tumor was gone. Wow. Uh, he was scheduled for surgery, I think it was about a week later. And he had been very forthright with his doctors about his history of encounters. In fact, he'd had some medical uh, symptoms as a result of his encounters, uh, like flash burns on his eyes, mm -hmm. puncture wounds and bruises and these sort of things. Uh, but went to the doctor and they're like, oh my God, you know, no, we... We don't see any trace of your cancer. They ended up removing some necrotic tissue, uh, but wrote in their report uh, uh, miraculous healing or unexplained healing, but yeah. wouldn't say that it was ETs because, of course, they can. <laughs> right. I don't think there's a checkbox for that on the forum, right? <laughs> right. But in that case, in that instance, or even the, the woman that you spoke about who had a cyst in her, her, her fallopian tubes, um, the removal itself, it was non-surgical, right? I mean, there was no scars or anything. The woman had fluid, but there was no scars from, a, from, from like an entry wound or anything, was there? Um, possibly. That was not determined. They did look, see what looked like perhaps laser scars. But I, mean, I talked to one guy, uh, see what was his name, Michael Carter. He was diagnosed with a blood clot in his leg. His leg was swollen up to three times its size. Mm. And... Uh, He'd seen the doctor, he was on blood thinning drugs, a whole cocktail of drugs, and he was visited by a 
sort of human-looking E.T., which didn't use any instruments at all, just sort of beamed him with a beam of light. And he woke up the next morning, and his leg was not only of normal size and healed, but the veins themselves had been, looked like, re-rooted. Uh, he went to the doctor. The doctor was absolutely shocked. He's like, what happened? And Michael's like, you know, let's just leave it at that as a miraculous healing. Usually they do not want to tell their doctors, and these kind of cases leave a long, long line of you know, baffled and upset doctors. It's crazy. I, I wish we'd have more of these kinds of encounters where people who are sick get the treatment that we obviously don't have available to us here on Earth. Uh, that would be that'd be a great consequence of all of this. Uh, we're talking tonight with Preston Dennett. Uh, Preston, your website is prestondennett.weebly.com, right? That's right. And there's a lot of information there about your work and your books and uh, things that people can uh, can explore on the website. You've got so many books. Talk to us a little about, um, let's talk about uh, the drive-in book, UFOs at the Drive-In, 100 True Cases. Why did you choose this particular uh, topic? It seems very, very specific. Uh, yeah, it certainly is, isn't it? Kind of strange, but uh, I had this lady at my office, actually, Claudia, came up, found out I was a UFO researcher and says, oh, you've got to hear this encounter that happened to me at the Paramount Drive-In in 1971. Southern California. She was just a little girl there with her parents, her sister, and uh, suddenly she's looking out the side of the car and people are running to their cars. They're dropping their popcorn, dropping their drinks and screeching out of the parking lot. And she looks at her parents. They're entranced. They're staring not at the screen, to the right of it. And she looks next to the screen and there's this classic flying saucer, very large, colored lights around it. It was almost totally silent. It was actually making this kind of whoosh, whoosh noise. And she said it was almost as if it was watching them watch the movie. And it was actually below the level of the screen itself. I mean, it was right there. I'm like, wow, this is a pretty incredible encounter. And uh, I kind of thought it was a one-off. I just thought it was unique. And I started to run into more cases. And after running into three in a row, I'm like, okay, maybe I better look into this thing. Could UFOs be targeting drive-in theaters? Because I had, you know, just recently did a whole study project about UFOs targeting schoolyards. Right. We talked about that book uh, the last time you were on, I believe. And uh, so this looked like it was very similar. And it turned out, yeah, this is exactly what's going on. It's very much the same thing. I've got 100 cases all across the United States primarily little bit in Canada, but these are not normal sightings. I'm telling you, drive-in theaters are being targeted directly. These objects appear from the horizon or above, come straight to the theater and drop down right above the screen itself or to either side and remain there for a pretty long period of time. In some cases, actually put on a show. I mean, I'm not kidding. They will literally like release smaller objects or start dancing around and putting on a little display, I guess you would call it. So this is definitely, I think, an agenda on their part to sort of announce their presence. I wasn't sure whether to go with the joke about them not paying admission to see the movie or the joke about them being fans of Hollywood. I'm not sure which is funny. But no, in all seriousness, what do you think attracts them? Uh, well, yeah, I looked into it. I thought, well, is it the movie? And uh, I actually looked specifically at the movie itself 
And it was a wide variety of films, you know, The Simpsons Movie, Exorcist, King Kong, Jurassic Park, <laughs> uh, Outlaw Josie Wales. You know, I don't think they're there for the entertainment because uh, they're not, in most cases, I should say, not staying for the entire duration of the movie. So, well, you know, this is a big screen flashing very provocative images. Right. There's, there's a giant beam of light. It's got to be visible from way high up there in outer space. And yeah, I mean, it does make a very striking footprint, I think, if you look at it from above. So maybe they're just curious. But ultimately, no, I thought, well, you know, if they were just curious, they could look at it from far away. Why would they come down and start releasing other craft? I mean, here's what the case that really got me convinced that I know what's going on here. May 1963, this is from George Fawcett, a great researcher, the Wellington Circle Twin Theater in Medford, Massachusetts. This object drops down, and uh, it's this sort of cigar-shaped craft. It starts releasing one, several other discs, eight in total, which start dancing around for about 45 minutes, in sort of rot- rotating columns. They scoop back into the craft, and it darts away. So it clearly wants to be seen. It's putting on a show. Yeah, that's my main theory that they are using driving theaters as an opportunity to, for disclosure, to announce their presence without sort of completely upsetting society. I can also see, you know, let, let's let's assume that you are uh, uh, an alien spacecraft and you're you're traveling and you're observing, and you see these giant images of humans, which would what what you know a, a driving theater screen would show. Um, that might make you curious in itself um, and have to get in there and see, are these actually large human creatures? Or, you know, as they get closer, they realize it's some kind of projected image, I would assume. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. In some cases, they actually turn off the movie. Oh, really? <laughs> so, because no one's watching it, and they're just watching these objects. So in, in these cases, I mean, you know, we don't have nearly the number of drive-in theaters that we once had. They, they kind of are a lost uh way to watch film, although some have made a bit of a resurgence in a nostalgia sense. But in those cases, I'd have to think that, you know, it's it's not one witness that would have seen this. It would have been dozens or hundreds even that would have been able to witness this. Were you able to get corroborating uh, accounts of some of these? Only in a very small number of cases, like three, four. Uh, so no, that does not happen often. And apparently just most people aren't talking about this. But yeah, that's what makes these cases unique. There's nothing like this out there in the UFO literature. Schoolyards comes closest. But that's you know kids, maybe 40, 50 students. The average number of people at the driving theater is closer to 100 or 200, uh, mostly adults, or at least a good portion. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's nothing quite like this. Only a couple, I mean, there's, most of these cases do rely on one or witness, perhaps a couple or a family, I'm going to say there's three or four that did get corroboration from independent witnesses. Uh, but I mean, some are actually very well verified. Take this one case, which occurred at the Terrace Drive-In. This is in Bakersfield, California, August 12th, 1952. It's a pretty big theater, 650 cars. And uh, the main witness is Lieutenant Jenkins, a military guy, trained observer, uh, who was there with all these other people in this 
cigar-shaped object drops down out of the sky and hovers right over the screen like they do, turned on its lights, sort of flashing, making itself known, and it darts off. So he calls the local police, and after the police had received four calls, they just finally drove down there, and there was still 100 people there uh, who wanted to be interviewed or share their story. And he collected about 30 testimonies uh, and finally sent it off to the local Air Force base, which turned out to be Edwards Air Force Base. And they were very interested. Uh, Sure. Yeah, they wrote it up in a report marked action and sent it out the next day uh, straight off to, get this, uh, I mean, it bypassed Blue Book. It went to the Air Technical Intelligence Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, in Ohio and was forwarded to Ent Air Force Base in Colorado, where we tracked air traffic, and to the very highest level of government, the Director of Intelligence at D.C. And this is documented on you know, files you can actually access. So from the very beginning, our government has known this is a real phenomenon and was very interested in it, and in particular, these types of cases. What do you think about the recent moves towards disclosure? We've heard a lot about them in, you know, even even mainstream media reports. Uh, you know, the Tic Tac UFO video from the military, military statements about um, unidentified objects. Uh, there seems to be this slow walk of releasing information and actually opening up the discussion. What do you make of all that? Yeah, I'm hoping it's not too little too late, honestly, because while I appreciate that they've released some footage and actually said that we have, quote, uh, material from otherworldly vehicles. Right, that's right. That, that's huge. That should have been front-page news. But the fact is we've got these craft, we have the bodies, we have enough whistleblower eyewitness testimony, hundreds of them, to, I think, confirm that you know, cases like Roswell are true. So it's a little disingenuous to sort of show us this little blurry film when right behind the curtain there is absolute conclusive proof. <laughs> uh, so I, I think they're, they've painted themselves into a corner, honestly, and they now have to disclose it's finally to their benefit because if they don't, they will lose control of this situation. Um, seriously, they will lose all credibility and uh, people will start to look elsewhere for answers. They already are because uh, they... Most people believe our government is covering information on this up. And it's not speculation. It's demonstrable. The cover-up is easily proven through documents released from the Freedom of Information Act. I'm going to ask a bit of a politically charged question, although I don't mean it to be politically charged. Um, But in today's climate, everything seems to be. But um, we have seen a real uh, deep division develop among people in this country over different political ideologies and topics. And often it's, uh, and in many cases, when we're distracted by these divisions and we're fighting amongst ourselves, we kind of take our eye off the ball. And that's the ball is what the government is doing. Could it be that some of these distractions are uh, an attempt to keep us from asking many questions, including questions about disclosure? Uh, yeah, I wondered about that because of, uh certainly seemed like an interesting time to sort yeah, of... Yeah, well, I'm saying, as we start to see some of this, all of a sudden, you know, we've got this this chaos uh, that, that makes us think about many other things. 
Yeah, yeah. And this would be a great time to sort of slip in some disclosure because uh, there's going to be another news story that's going to kick it off the headlines. Right, and while we're fighting amongst ourselves about whatever it happens to be for the day, uh, we're not banding together and demanding that the government release information about this or some of the other secrets it's keeping from us. Yep, yep. Well, we've had a, a real rough history. Humanity always has. I do think if you look at it from a very long historical perspective, we're making great progress. Uh, we've always been very warlike, and uh, but human rights and are progressing, or you know, we're doing better bit by bit, uh, and then we take a few steps back, and we're going through a bit of a rough time right now. But ultimately, I'm hopeful for how all of this turns out. I really am. I think our government at some point is going to disclose, and once that, you know, we start having more truthfulness and transparency with this subject, we're going to start seeing more UFO activity and perhaps open official contact. I think that will come at some point. Do you think there's do, away. do you think there's contact of, of a an official and a diplomatic level at the government now with uh, alien races? I do. Yeah. And I mean you can point to a number of pretty I mean controversial but certainly well known incidents like the nineteen fifty four Eisenhower meeting at Edwards Air Force Base. But there are others, you know, Holloman Air Force Base supposedly there was diplomatic relations. Uh, people have reported ETs working with humans in a number of different areas, like Area 51, or for that matter, Rendlesham and Edwards Air Force Base and others. So I think there probably has been uh, open—I mean, open contact within military and government circles, uh, but with the public at large, no. So they're doing a kind of grassroots movement and announcing their presence in a way that's a little bit sneaky uh, and makes it known that they're real without having to sort of land on the White House lawn. I think you said your most recent book is the Onboard UFO Encounters book. Is that right? Yep, that one in the drive-in uh, book, Drive-In UFO Encounters. Okay, so let's talk. We talked about the drive-in book a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the UFO encounter, onboard UFO encounters. Now, we touched on that idea a few minutes ago in this conversation, but... Um, what type of encounters are we talking about? Are we talking about the kind of cliched uh, on a table being poked and prodded uh, by some, you know, aliens standing around this table with odd devices? Is that the type of thing? Or is there something uh, very different about these? Um, well, that's certainly the most commonly reported experience people have. But, mm-hmm. uh, no, I'm going to say that there's definitely more than that. And I think Four or five of the cases, people were actually taken to what we would call the control room or the engine room. Oh, wow. And were actually put down in the seat and told how this craft flies and taught how to fly it. And at least two of these cases, they actually did fly these craft around. Uh, One described how it's very telepathic, empathetic, empathetic link with the ship. Another guy, he was 13 years old. Uh, and they sat him down in the seat, and they're like, here's the joystick. This makes it move forward. This gives it power. Uh, so this is not that uncommon. I mean, it sounds a little science fiction-y, but if you actually objectively look at these cases, uh, it's fairly consistently reported. 
I'm curious about, have, have, has anybody ever shared an experience with you where maybe, um, and maybe being in the cockpit or the control room is close to this, but where they're, abdu- they're brought on board a ship, they're sat down and, they're, and they say, and the aliens say to the person, ask us anything you want to know, we'll answer any questions you've got. Um, I've got only a couple of cases like that, uh, and uh, people are often very tight-lipped about you know, what they've been told. They don't want to share it, um, uh, but for, usually, generally speaking, ETs are themselves not super communicative. They will say right. pretty much, you know, "Don't be afraid; we won't hurt you." And this is particularly true with people who are having a strong fear reaction. But yeah, some people absolutely do have long conversations and get all kinds of information. Uh, one lady, I'll call her Lynette. Uh, she had a long conversation with the Grays. They told her, uh, gave her all kinds of messages. They said, you need to stop putting out the greed and negativity that you are putting out, or you will destroy yourselves like we did. They told her that they had been manipulating human genetics for uh, a very long time, and animal genetics as well, specifically of dogs and cats, to make them more uh, emotionally compatible with humans. Uh, that I found kind of interesting. Uh, they told her that People had often mistaken them for angels, but it was actually them. They said if people should start disappearing from the planet currently, uh, it's being done by them for, quote, the universal good. Uh, so they, yeah, they told her, people should tell people to stop eating meat. You don't need to eat meat. <laughs> That's going to be a tough one to convince me of. <laughs> I love a good cheeseburger now and then. I'm sorry. <laughs> And these fake ones don't do it. They're not they're not quite the same. It's curious, you know, you've written so many books about so many angles here. What's your favorite? Which, which, which subset of all of this is your favorite to research and write about? Well, people being taken on board, I think that's the real cutting edge. But I have to tell you, the schoolyard book, uh, I don't know if for whatever reason, <laughs> that one really affected me. I guess it's because it's young kids. Yeah, yeah. Half the Half the cases were elementary age. Uh, So I felt, wow, you know, that, yeah, that really affected me. Maybe that's why they won't open the schools. (laughs) (laughs) They know what's going on. No, but in all seriousness, you found these encounters to be a bit haunting, weren't they? I mean, you know, you've got kids playing out in the playground and these, these craft keep showing up. Yeah, and I'm still getting new cases, by the way. I mean, this is not something that's stopped. This is still going on. Yeah, I mean it's very interesting to. It's pretty. It's difficult when you start talking about kids at that age to get really accurate information. But did but did any of these result in any kind of abduction that you're aware of? Yes, yes, there are some. Really, absolutely. Uh, it's not super common, but yeah, in a few cases, people report being abducted afterwards. Uh, so I'm like wondering <laughs> if they were chosen there at that point. But generally speaking, no, that doesn't happen. Uh, yeah, I mean the. Those schoolyard cases are very hot. I like the healing cases, too. Something, because they're ignored, they don't get a whole lot of attention, and yet some of them are very well verified. So, and it shows, I think, a really good side to the phenomenon that often gets a bad rap. Preston, is there any geographic uh, 
concentration of any of these types of phenomena, whether it's schoolyards or drive-ins or just general uh, sightings or abductions? Does it happen more often in any particular region of the world or, or any particular region of the U.S.? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we do see attractors, certainly, like drive-ins and schoolyards or nuclear power stations, dams, bodies of water. Certain areas do attract UFOs, graveyards, rocket launches, but there are also these weird, well-known hotspots. And I'm guessing that most areas around the country and the world, for that matter, do have these. Because I've written books on a number of states, you know, California and Colorado and so on. Uh, and they all have UFO hotspots. Colorado, it's the San Luis Valley. Arizona, it's Sedona. Or California, it would be the Santa Monica Mountains, the Santa Catalina Channel, Catalina area. Uh, so there does seem to be something about certain areas that have higher levels of activity than other areas. One of the places uh, that is a very specific location that has a lot of stories of activity is the Skinwalker Ranch. Have you ever had a chance to look into that, or do you have any opinion on the stories that have come from Skinwalker Ranch? Uh, well, I've certainly been you know, keeping up with it. I've got the books, and uh, there's a another book by Frank Salisbury, the Utah UFO display, which I think is connected to this. It's right in that same area. So, yeah, that's another, what we would call hotspot, an area where there's perhaps a vortex or something that allows a wide variety of phenomena to manifest. Uh, Yeah, I'm definitely interested in what's going on there, and it sort of shows this weird connection between various phenomena, not just UFOs sometimes Bigfoot and ghosts and other stuff, interdimensional stuff. This program takes the, the approach. Uh, we, ha- we talk about some uh, what would be considered very controversial topics, and I always take the approach as a host. I am not going to uh, um, de- determine whether or not I, the, the, the person giving us information is believable or not. I leave that to the audience to decide. I try to just ask the right questions so that people can get enough information to make their own decisions. When you interview somebody to talk about their their story, whether it's just a contact story, an abduction story, how do you approach it? Do you weed out stories that you don't believe, or do you just collect it all and present it and let people make their own decisions? Uh, No, I I have done some weeding out. I mean, I have to have... (laughs) I don't mean to be judgmental, but certainly you have to uh, verify the story in in some respect. Um, It's always great when you have a multiple witness story or you can get character witnesses. But at some point, you know, I do an initial interview. I always do a follow-up interview recorded and and then a a main interview. So you can kind of tell when you're talking to a person, uh, when they start getting emotional and they're very wary about uh, talking and revealing this stuff. It's not unusual for some person to say, you know, listen, I don't do drugs. I, you know, I've got no history of mental illness in my family. I've got a good job. This sort of thing. And uh, you can start to get a sense of when someone's telling the truth about their encounters, specifically when they start revealing uh, lesser-known details or little-known details about their onboard experience that aren't perhaps super well-known in the UFO literature. And you're like, oh, these are like little red flags that like, wow, you know, how would they know this? 
little ways you can kind of determine this. Yeah. Yeah. Has has anybody ever expressed fear of some kind of retribution if they tell the story? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly people will say, you know, please don't use my name. I'm a professional. Yeah, but more, I mean, retro, I guess I should have been more clear. Retribution from the aliens that either contacted or abducted that person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, that has happened. Well, one that comes to mind is a lady I had interviewed um, who had had encounters or child was having encounters, her husband had seen objects and the ETs coming in uh, to their room. So it was a pretty solid case. Uh, her sister had had encounters as well. And I'm like, wow, you know, you've got an amazing story here. How would you like to go on you know, TV? Because I had an opportunity. It was a public access show, nothing huge. And she's like, sure, you know, she was pretty open to it. And called me up just a few days before we were supposed to go on. Says, you know, I can't do it. I'm like, why? The ETs came, they're angry, and they really don't want me to go on TV. They don't want people to know. Uh, so I'm like, wow, okay, so they're aware of what's going on. They're watching this. Uh, I've had little indications like that, like that, that make me wonder if the ETs, how aware are they of my own research? I mean, one time I was interviewing a guy, and uh, he called me up the next day. He's like, you're not going to believe what happened. While we were on the phone... A UFO landed in the street in front of my house, and his son, his young son, saw it. Uh, but uh, that's kind of weird. I mean, what are they doing, listening in on the conversation? Right. I suppose I should be checking out my windows, huh? <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Does, has anybody been able to produce, you know, if we have... And again, it's not necessarily common, but certainly you, you've been able to do a really good job of documenting many of these onboard encounters. Has anybody been able to produce or at least claim to have taken any pictures on one of these craft during one of these onboard encounters? Um, not um, that I've run across. Uh, not like inside the UFO. People have sent me pictures of a craft that have been over their house. Uh, yeah, Joe Gardner, one guy who does have a chapter in the book, has captured a number of pretty interesting photos of you know, little glowing disks and stuff hovering over his house, uh, which were viewed by his girlfriend and his uh, other friend, multiple witness sighting. And he, he sent me some of these, but as far as actually you know, photographed uh, the inside of a UFO, um, I don't think there's a whole lot of cases like that anywhere. Yeah, I would imagine that we'd see those pictures. I imagine they'd be everywhere if someone had those. I'm waiting for it. I, I suspect at some point that will happen. I mean, you have to assume that given the fact that almost everyone has a high-quality camera on their smartphone in their pockets, uh, that uh, one of these or several of these abductees had their phone with them at the time. And you have to wonder at that point, does it, are they being prohibited from taking the pictures or are they, you know, so overwhelmed with what's happening, they don't think about it? Yeah, well, I have one case involving 11 witnesses and um, three of them were photographers and a couple of other people had cameras and not one of their cameras would work. All their watches uh, stopped at A15, mm-hmm. their flashlights wouldn't work. That was on Catalina Island. I have another case on Catalina Island where two people had cell phones and both powered down during the UFO sighting. So I'm going to say yes, because this is something that does happen in quite a number of cases. The cameras just won't work. Preston, when you want to try to see a UFO, where do you go? Um, oh, I've, 
I go where they're being seen. Um, there was a wave of sightings in the Santa Monica Mountains off the Southern California coast from 1992 to 1994. You can bet I was out there in those fields camping out late at night <laughs> looking for this stuff. Right. I was, and I did see some anomalous lights, uh, you know, big bright lights that would suddenly disappear. Not a plane. This was you know, not a satellite, not a helicopter, not a balloon. I can't say it was an alien craft, uh, but I, you know, I, I suspect it was because of what other people are telling me. Yeah, and, and, you know, as as the name would imply, it's an unidentified flying object, but you could rule out a bunch of the, you know, what you would expect to be rational explanations. Yeah, I've had many people describe seeing this sort of ball of light in the sky, and then it comes dropping down, and boom, it lands, and it's a metallic craft. Uh, so it looks like a ball of light when it's way up there, but when it comes down, uh, the plasma, I guess, uh, cools off. It reveals itself to be an actual craft of some kind, and certainly not our own. Do you ever have a repeat of the golf ball-sized ball of light uh, visitation? Um, once, and it was not nearly as dramatic, and I still wonder about it, but I was driving over to a UFO meeting. I think Stephen Greer was going to be there, and uh, Richard Boyland, and a bunch of other people within this CE5 kind of community. And driving on a crowded freeway, and a ball of light drops down, and does this sort of scoots by my car. I'm like, is that a reflection? Oh, my God. You know what? I started swerving around a bit. It was a little bit dangerous. This was L.A. traffic. Yeah. And it took off right away, and it was just too quick for me to say for sure that this was, you know, a repeat performance. But I think, you know, I'm like, I saw it for just a split second. So I don't know. Well. can't really say about that case, but I've seen them. I've had a number of really good sightings, actually. Five or ten, yeah. You, you're, you know, you do. Uh, this is a labor of love for you. Obviously, um, no one would write this much about this particular topic unless they were truly fascinated by it, which you, you are, and you're to be thanked and and uh, admired for your um, your willingness to share this with people. So, thank you for doing that. But you know, with so many books, if someone's new to your work, do you recommend they start with any particular book or read them in any particular order? Well, they're all my babies, so I, I love them all. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Inside UFOs, I think that's a good starter, or Onboard UFO Encounters, because uh, that's where you get the most information. People have had actual face-to-face contact taken on board. These are people's life stories of their contact with UFOs. I'm putting out another book shortly this year uh, like that. So those are my favorite. But, hey, you know, I mean, if you like UFOs over California, if you if you're a California resident, that's, I think, a fun book. Right. I've got a number of states like that. Or UFO healings. I think that's a really interesting topic that's just been largely ignored. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to choose. Um, like, uh, I did a bunch of research on USOs, unidentified submersible objects. Yeah. So that's another area that I find super fascinating. Depending on your answer, this may be a very, very silly question, but we can't do a program without mentioning the pandemic. Um, it just seems to be a right of any show at this point. Um, but have you seen, or there is there any talk in the UFO community between a connection between the pandemic and any UFO activity? No, no, I've been looking. I have to guess that they are aware of it. 
uh, the ETs because they're they're able to track abductees. And, I mean, they're healing them. I haven't gotten any reports of um, anyone healed of COVID. Though I do have like ten cases of people healed of flu and colds and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I suspect there are cases out there, and that they do know about it, uh, but. They're not just going to come down and heal everyone. We have right. to solve our own problems. That would cause more problems if suddenly everyone was healed. We'd have overpopulation. Uh, it's really up to us, I think, to solve our own problems. And they've said it much, said as much to uh, experiencers. I mean, they've told them face to face. Well, you've told us what your next book is, but there's got to be a topic or two out there that you, it's kind of like a, a, a carrot out in front of you that you're chasing. Um, what, do you, what do you see in the horizon for specific areas of investigation that you might pursue? Oh, there's so much I, I'd like to look into more deeply. Um, yeah, UFOs, I'm not going to move away from that subject, uh, but out-of-body uh, experiences, I'm fascinated by that. I've had a lot of personal experience with that. Uh, the whole paranormal field, you know, psychic abilities, precognition, I find that very interesting. Uh, Bigfoot, <laughs> once you get hooked into any of these subjects, it's hard to walk away from. Ghosts, near-death experiences, never written about near-death experiences, but I've interviewed quite a few people who've had some really amazing experiences. So that's another subject I'm pretty excited about. Did you say that you have personal experience with out-of-body experiences? Yeah, yeah. I actually wrote a book about it. It's my only autobiographical book. Oh. Uh, and got really into it following the death of my mother. I, I saw her ghost. She started coming to me into my bedroom. And I was having these sort of lucid dreams. And picked up a book by Robert Monroe, who you know, writes about yeah. out-of-body experiences. Sure. And did the exercises, and it worked. Darned, I had some amazing out-of-body experiences. I mean, I met my mother. I went to the other side. I learned about past lives. I visited healing temples, learning centers, the Akashic Library. I mean, for real, this is uh, another world out there that we've... Yeah, I mean, this has changed my life. This sounds like a topic for another program that we'll have to have you back on to discuss because it sounds like it is a whole program unto itself. Oh, I could talk for hours. I love it more than UFOs, because this is something that I think sounds very, has so, the potential to change everyone's yeah, life. Yeah, and it sounds very personal, too. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's so amazing. We're out of time, Preston. Uh, let people know where they can find your books, and of course, we mentioned the website, but mention again. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. Got all my books there, excerpts. You can contact me through the website. Uh, my books are on Amazon. Got a YouTube channel putting out a lot of my research on that. I'm also available on Facebook and Twitter. So, yeah, I appreciate you having me on the show. It was really fun. Well, it's great to have you on because you're a wealth of knowledge. You've done so much work and research in these areas that, um, you know, you educate us every time we're on. So thanks for doing that. Look forward to having you back again soon. Hey, I look forward to it, too. Thank you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards 
at gmail.com.